When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Karen Davis, who is a musician and a music teacher, and also, I suppose, an author at this point. I was scrolling through YouTube and the other social media websites that I frequent, and I found a video of hers that displayed a very rich and powerful character, and I wanted to interface with her and have a discussion about what she believes in. And what we end up talking about is music and her experience about that and her thoughts on performance and on creating something awesome. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know you will as well. So without further ado, and yes, links to her work are down in the description. Here is Karen Davis. Good afternoon. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I got my uh, got my hot cocoa here, mm. and I'm all ready. Marshmallows or whipped cream? Uh, neither. I wow. am not a fan of extras in the cocoa. You going commando with your cocoa, then, huh? I really do. Yes, yes. <laughs> Are you you uh? From what I gathered from your sparse internet presence, and I didn't do my NSA deep dive, but you you teach uh, music. I do. And I've been doing that for quite some time. Um, I teach piano. I have taught guitar. I don't have any guitar students right now. Um, And I teach uh, very little kids. I started teaching, uh, well, not really teaching, but I have a gig where I'm playing music for babies from like three months to a year. And I've never been around them. You know, well, that's not entirely true. The last time I've been around a baby, I was nine. So it's been quite a while. And I will just tell you, babies are magic. They are absolutely (laughs) How do do they, um, how are they responding to the music? And what kind of music are you uh, giving to them? Well, it's so funny, you know, because I figured I would just go in and improv and play like, you know, like finger pick and play like soft stuff and, you know, cause they're little people and sensitive little ears. They were obviously bored. Um, so I started playing my fifties rock and roll repertoire. Mm. Um, Elvis and Chuck Berry and uh, who else? Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, they are not big on the Led Zeppelin at this point, which is disappointing to me, but you know, Musical tastes evolve, and they're very young. Um, there's this one little boy. He's he just turned one. He listens. He makes eye contact, and he claps. Which is watching a one-year-old do this. That's your whole day right there. You really don't need very much after that. Um, some of the younger ones are starting to bounce. They sit there with their little baby bodies, and they <laughs> and they bounce, and it's it just. It's amazing. It is Does that one-year-old have rhythm? Is he able to align uh, up with you yet? Not yet, but he's very bright, 
And I suspect that he very well may um, in a very short period of time. I um, I was teaching preschool in the, I guess, the aughties uh, mm-hmm. and, and some of the uh, 2010s. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I was a teach, uh, preschool aide, and then they gave me a full-time gig working with the toddlers, wow. which is yeah. one to three. And yeah. uh, I had to completely readjust my whole... Uh, landscape of interaction because mm-hmm. they they're really rather pre-verbal. What I ended mm-hmm. up doing is bringing in a guitar and then just kind of mm-hmm. really building my communication from the ground up, like just yeah. with syllables and very basic things. Yeah, got a couple of kids' albums out of that. Have you right. uh, been composing for them? You think you will? Um. No, it it didn't occur to me to do that, but maybe I will. Um, One of the things I like to do when I teach piano is have my kids compose. Because if they're learning how to read music, sometimes um, actually putting notes on the staff or, you know, putting notes together uh, helps cement some of those concepts that this note is still this note, regardless of what's on either side of it. It's still in the same place on the piano or on the guitar, it has not moved. And, you know, one of the the funny concepts is that, um, you know, when kids are learning how to read the staff, is that they really want the note to be something that it's not. (laughs) They want it to be a note that they know. So if we start with, let's say, C, D, E, when we introduce another note, it's like they either think it's E or they really want it to be E because they can't remember what it is. And it's like, okay, if the note is not in the E spot, it's not E. It is. Hmm. It has to be something else. So, you know, actually, so it, it is actually something else because we have other keys on the piano and we have other, you know, we have other frets on the guitar. So if it's not in the E spot, it can't be E. Okay. Let's figure out what it is. Um, you know, uh, I, I like that. I, and, you know, when you're teaching beginner instruments or even, um, you know, if you're, if you're teaching basic musical concepts, you, there's a lot of, it's not this thing. So it is another thing. Let's huh. figure out what thing this is and how we, how we do that. What are some of the basic like principles that you put in as, as the foundation of musical understanding? Um, that perfection isn't necessary and that you will make mistakes. I make mistakes. I, I play stuff that I'm working on for kids all the time. And I, they probably think it's incredibly boring, but that's okay. Um, and like if I'm playing in between lessons or if I'm, if I'm playing while the kid is getting set up at the computer, they will, I don't swear, but they will hear me say, yeah, or, <laughs> or, okay. <laughs> and I do that, you know, to get my practicing in those, those little moments. But I also want them to see that, you know, making mistakes or having to repeat something is part of the gig. That's it. Um, I am yeah. far from a virtuoso. Um, and so I have to practice to get it right. Um, you know, and so does everybody. 
So that's one of the first things I want them to learn. And then um, we talk about, you know, basic like note recognition, you know, the, this line, if it's on this line, it's this note, if it's in this space, it's this note. Um, but I also talk a lot about just looking at a piece of music and seeing what it does. Meaning, um, are we going up, are we going down? How do you know? And I do a little thing to help kids learn how to read music where I call it following the path where I'll make a staff, I won't put a clef on it. And, you know, I'll say, just play this. Look at what, look at how the notes are traveling. If they're going up, you go up. If they're going down, you go down. If we're stepping, then step. If we're skipping, then skip. Um, and I start doing that right away to teach kids how to sight read and also to teach them to not be intimidated by unfamiliar text. Hmm. Um, Cause it's all just music. It's all, it's seven letters. Right. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And it repeats. And that's it. That's all it is. And in, in different combinations. And sometimes the combinations aren't even that different. So I teach a lot about patterns like chord progressions and stuff like that. Um, you know, and my that's what my teachers did. And it bored the crap out of me. I was like, OK, OK, I know. G, D7, G, D7. Right. Bach does that all the time. I know. And <laughs> And then it's like, well, then if you really knew, you wouldn't be making these mistakes. So why don't you play that another four times and maybe be quiet? So, but it's in my head. And so when I started songwriting and when I do compose, it's like, okay, so why don't you use that, use that one five pattern? Because everybody likes it and it works. Yeah. What, what, um, what was the process of going from somebody who was studying music to somebody who was making music for you? Were, were you foisted into learning music by your parents? Was that something that was mandatory? No, I was asking for a piano when I was three. And oh. I was telling people that I'm going to be a singer and a teacher. What else was I going to be? I was going to be a singer, teacher, doctor, and a piano player. Um, I don't remember my father's mother. I, she died when I was very young. Um, I'm, or I have a vague memory of someone who I thought my grandmother was. Anyway, um, she played piano. She was a working musician. And, and I have a very, very vague like memory of a memory of being in some old lady's house. And she had a piano. And I wanted a piano. Um, and my parents finally got one for me when I was eight. It was a surprise. I came home from school one day and there was a piano. And I was like, you know, for a minute, I was like, whose is this? <laughs> so uh, I started taking piano lessons, I guess, fairly soon after that. My mother taught me a little bit um, because her father also played piano, but he played piano by ear. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much decided that I was going to be at least some kind of musician, basically from the time I was a toddler. And then, um, you know, I was in, uh, I went to Catholic school and we had a folk choir because that's what you did. And um, the, uh, it was mostly girls. And so I was introduced to guitar playing uh, with, uh, by the, you know, the cool girls and, you know, the kind of nerdy girls in, uh, in my Catholic school. Um, and so I learned how to play like some basic chords and stuff like that. Cause, and I'll tell you something, those of you that want to play rock guitar, that's kind of all you need. Um, 
And I would also play at summer camp, which was all girls. And so it's like, I feel like I, the, the learning with guitar anyway, with guitar and singing, the learning and the making of music really happened at the same time. Okay. Piano for a very long time was more of my private world. It was like my, you know, it's an intellectual pursuit. And, um, I, what, how can I say this? It, I am not a great pianist by any means. Um, I do. Okay. Um, I like what I like. I, I play, I think reasonably well, but for people who are, who really play, uh, no, 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 no. Um, and I, I'm talking about like, like virtuosos and stuff like that. Okay. And you know, uh, so I have good piano skills as far as, you know, and I could do, what can I say? I could play stuff like Elton John and, and, you know, and Jerry Lee Lewis, I can play some very nice boogie woogie. Thank you very much. Um, but as far as being a classical performer, nope. Um, but I still love it. I love to work on it and I love the challenge that it presents. And I had some great piano instructors. My um, piano teachers were both concert pianists and um, both lived in walking distance of my house. So I walked to piano lessons with concert pianists. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so my parents did not want me to major in music when I went to college. And we had kind of a, a back and forth over that. And so the compromise was that I could double major in, uh, in theater because I figured I could teach acting, right, or dramatic literature. And um, I could also major in psychology because then I could be a shrink. And mm. they really wanted me to be a doctor. I'm terrible at math. Um, I, you know, <laughs> it's, don't ask me to do it. Get somebody else. Um, so I had my two majors and I realized that I did not want to act. Um, and when I was graduating or getting ready to graduate from college, um, a friend of mine, I don't, I was trying to put rock bands together, which is a whole other like mountain of nonsense. And Wait, like crazy trying to be an, an agent kind of thing or trying to no, be a friend? No, I was trying to find band. other music to play with. Okay. You know, I had written a handful of very, very bad songs that I was extremely committed to, as one must. And I was trying to find players. Um, Being a black woman, playing rock and roll. (laughs) I've had so many people tell me that I don't know what I'm doing, but whatever. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's a whole other, that's a whole other show. Um, Is this, is this in the era of like Tracy Chapman kind of? Oh God. Yeah. And see, people compared me to her and I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Um, (laughs) cause she, she's, she's more folky then. And you wanted to be more hardcore. Well, yes and no. I mean, as, okay. I think as someone who, who played classical music as a kid, right. Um, and would also kind of mess around with it. Like you can, you can really jazz up some Bach very, very, very easily. Um, there's a prelude that I was working on where if you play it slow, it sounds like boogie woogie. Hmm. It's got that walking bass line under it. It's got trills in the left hand. And if you slow it down, um, it's got real, what can I say? Um, it's got real soul in it. 
Okay. You know, the yeah. fact that it's a prelude and you play it at breakneck speed, right? It's like, well, you know, you you don't hear that. But on your way to that, you know, you can you can hear it. Hold on for a minute. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. I am such a teacher and a music nerd. Okay. Yeah, so you have this. Whoa, that's loud. Okay. Hold on. You have this. Just here, right? So so and you're walking at right. You're walking a, an arpeggio on the top of it, right? So you've got this. you have to play that about 15 times faster and so it becomes like this very light busy frilly kind of deal but when you slow that down i mean you hear you i hear blues in that so as far as genres go you know from the time i was about 13 14 i was like yeah it's all bullshit anyway you take a country tune right um and you speed it up as the country folks have figured out You've got you've got punk and you've got rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's really just a question of like tempo, and and whether or not your guitar is distorted, and yeah. what the person's voice sounds like. Um, what was I playing the other day? I was playing uh, uh, "Not Easy" by the Commodores. The the other one. Um, oh, rats! I can't remember the name of the song. Anyway, it's a country song. It will come to me in a minute. Um, but anyway, let's just talk about easy. No, it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Right. You take that little melisma off and, you know, no, it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. Right. Um, it's not necessarily an R&B tune there's definite country elements in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to argue with my mother about this. My mother really liked country and I couldn't stand it until I like started playing some of this stuff, like, you know, without telling her. And I was like, oh, it's all the same. It's the same. Is that why you didn't like it? Because it was too repetitive or too cookie cutter? No, because my mother listened to it. Oh, okay. And she liked embarrassing stuff. Like, and I was just like, oh no. And you know, when you're a kid, it's like your parents are embarrassing. Everything you like is awesome. And, you know, so it, we, we had some vigorous discussions, but as I was saying, um, the whole genre thing, folk versus this versus that, it all just seemed like a bunch of crap to me, you know, because as I said, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan. I still am. And if you listen to a Zeppelin record, you've got your acoustic stuff, you got your you got your blues-based stuff, you've just you've got your you know full-on rock and roll treatment. It's like, have people gotten stupider, or have they gotten stupider over the you know 15 years uh, since that stuff was coming out that every song on the record had to sound exactly the same? Um, hmm. You know. Why why were you receiving resistance for being a black female playing rock and roll? Is it was it aesthetic or did people just not see you able to pull that off? And what was it that they were not able to hear 
in your mind? That's a good question. I'm still not really sure about that. Although there are still precious few black women uh, playing rock and roll. Um, there are more than there were when I started doing this in so far, meaning that there are, there are more than none. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's been an explosion because there's like two or three. Yeah. So, um, and I, I don't think it's a matter of musical preference. I think that it's a matter of who the record industry feels they can sell. Okay. Yeah. And if you're talking about rock and roll, particularly like the harder, the harder versions thereof, um, you are talking about the power fantasies or the fantasies of white men. Okay. And white men want to hear their lives uh, explained to them by other white men. Having a black woman, right, enter that psychological and emotional realm. Yeah. Huh. I would imagine has to be disorienting. And I don't think it's necessarily racist. I think that it's cultural and the cultural currency of rock and roll is white maleness. And I think that the record industry, such that it is right now, is aware of that. And seeing as how, you know, you have online streaming and people aren't making money from record sales as much as they were, um, it's, it's even more precarious than it was, you know, back in the day, because there are, you know, there's not the same kind of revenue. I mean, rock and roll is not, it's, it's not the moneyed thing right now. Yeah. So taking any chances with, uh, you know, someone who, who does not fit the mold, um, I could see why, uh, the industry wouldn't do that at the same time, um, with black folks, we're taught that rock and roll is not our music. And that if you play that, I mean, I was told this, uh, you know, that you're some kind of race traitor or you're abandoning the culture. And I'm like, uh, well, hold on now. <laughs> because music is for everybody, it, you know. But again, you're talking about a cultural signifier, who yeah. you are, where you belong, what you think, how you've lived. And so, you know, now that I'm older, I, I understand where that comes from. I still don't buy into it, but it doesn't piss me off as much as it did when I was younger. Um, you know. What was it about rock and roll that brought, was there a power fantasy in there for you? What was the cultural or the psychic significance of that form of expression for you? Well, uh, I, my, my first, my first rock and roll love. Well, no. Okay. Uh, okay. Was the monkeys when I was eight. And I decided that I wanted to marry Davy Jones because, um, I saw on the, my brothers had monkeys records and I saw on the back that he was, uh, they said he was five, three. And, you know, at, I was trying to figure out, or, you know, it's like, what am I going to look like when I, when I grow up and am I going to be tall? Cause I wanted to be tall. I wanted to be five, seven. And, you know, I believe I had a couple conversations with my mother and she's like, well, you'll probably be about as tall as your sister. And my sister is, I believe, five, two. And I was like, really? Oh, that's kind of crap. 
But I figured I could marry Davy Jones because not only was he cute and English, but he was short. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I was the youngest of four. So I was walking around looking up at people all the time. And I'm like, oh, I could just look at him. I wouldn't have to look up. We could stop that. Okay. You know, so you were looking for some sort of gender equality then or gender parity, perhaps. Yeah. And I also figured, you know, like I said, he was cute and he was English. And so that that was that was the thing. Um, and as far as the other monkeys went, I thought that Peter Tork would be really nice to hang out with, but I didn't want to marry him. And that, you know, but Mike and I were, were pretty much the same because I can be very serious and just very um, I can be rather humorless. And I'm like, I totally get that. I get that. Hmm. Don't want to marry him though. And um, and Mickey just seemed too high maintenance, even at eight. I was like, <laughs> too much work. You're the best friend. You're too much like me, and I want to marry you. <laughs> so, <laughs> would you rather uh, in in a little girl's mind? <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, and then I got over the monkeys eventually, and. Um, I went through a Sean Cassidy phase. Jesus Christ, I must really be old if I am not embarrassed by that one anymore. Um, and then I saw The Kids Are All Right on cable and with The Who. And just like watching them, like, you know, just break shit. I was like, yes, okay. yes, okay. yes, that is so me. Yes. Hmm. Um because the the R&B and the disco scene at the time, it's like, this does not speak to me at all. It's like, I don't want to wear a freaking dress. I don't want to have to be nice on stage. I don't want to smile at people. Uh, you know, basically, and those are the other things you have to do if you're going to play classical music seriously. You have to dress a certain way. You have yeah. to have a certain onstage demeanor. And I'm like, I can't do that. I That is just crap. When I play, I have my teeth clenched and I'm like, I just, I want to dig into the music. I don't want to relate to anybody. I want to play the freaking song. <laughs> and so, you know, here are these four guys and there's no smiling going on and they're raising all kinds of hell and making all kinds of noise and saying all this, you know, crazy crap and then smashing their instruments. I was like, I'm doing that. I am doing this. And I think I was I was twelve. Okay. So I started. Um, I didn't ask for things anymore when I was twelve. I demanded an electric guitar. Okay. <laughs> and then you promptly uh, smashed it and 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 demanded mm. another one. No. Well, how did this work? Um, I thought. Now, even then, I had some critical distance. It was like, well, that whole instrument smashing thing. Uh, might not want to do that just yet. And I, I read a lot about them. So I read that uh, they were frequently in debt for a long time because they had to replace instruments. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't have a job yet. I got an allowance and I started figuring out how many weeks it, of allowance saving it would take me to actually replace my guitar. So it's like, yeah, maybe not. But, mm -hmm. 
I'm just, I, I was thinking about the ways in which you being invested in rock and roll might inform your, uh, your perspective on what's going now within the realm of gender and oh. how, you know, you had, you had Bowie, you had, uh, Jagger, uh, and we could list a bunch of names of, of males who were, you know, crossing lines and females too, crossing lines and playing around with these cultural signifiers. Right. And, and I wonder uh, if you want to just kind of ruminate on the ways in which art um, or the loss of art, the loss of culture as something that we produce and this kind of rise of identity uh, that's mm. kind of filling in the space of playing around with all of these things and not having music anymore. You have your Twitter account, these uh, young people, they grow up with their social media following rather than, you know, this vision of themselves on a stage, you know, actually making yeah. things that, that other people ingest and how that might right. influence the ways that we think about uh, gender or even think about race or think about all these different topics that we get obsessed about. Right. One of the things that really kind of strikes me about the whole, like, gender hysteria is that... um like you were saying, you had these guys back in the day who, as a matter of course, um, departed from your stereotypical gender norms. And the thing is, um, that stuff was pretty deeply ingrained in society in like in the 50s and, you know, in the 50s and the mid 60s. Um, you know, you, you would have been considered some kind of long haired weirdo in 1962. I mean, <laughs> you know, people will call you like, you know, he's a fag or he's a Bolshevik or whatever, yeah. or a yippie or a beatnik. Um, and with the beard and the, oh my God, what kind of egghead intellectual communist are you? So, and then, well, of, of the, the guys that you mentioned, Bowie and Jagger, eh, I think they're they're great in their way, but I was never into them. Robert Plant was my mm. guy, mm. and Robert Plant with the wrist flipping and yeah. the high voice and the the you know the posture on stage and the the belly shirts and the no underwear, praise Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, Robert Plant. Uh, how can I say this? apart from just how ridiculously hot and with the long hair, you know, apart from how ridiculously hot he was, um, there was at no point, as far as I know, did he ever consider himself to be anything other than male. And I was watching the song remain the same a couple years ago. And I was like, what's going on here? Because you've got this guy who is basically dressed like like a fag all right and i know we're not supposed to use that word anymore but you understand like that would be yeah uh from you know, that cultural that point of view yeah. that would be a term applied to him and you've got this mostly male audience losing their minds over this guy that if he was walking down the street dressed like that would probably want to kill him so what is that? What is that about? And I realized the height of of male privilege is to be able to throw your masculinity away, which you can't do. But to pretend to throw your masculinity away and have people give you money and praise you for doing that, because men 
prize masculinity so greatly that if you've got, if you can eschew yours, right? And you can put on a half shirt and you can stand there and flip your wrist and sing all up in the sky and, you know, do all that hollering and screaming and emotional passing out. That's not what men are supposed to do. Men are supposed to be stoic and they're supposed to be tough and they're supposed to be clothed, particularly if they're, you know, around other men. And God knows you're not supposed to have your junk clearly visible. And yet you have this, this tall willowy man with this, this, you know, this amazing hair. And he is, um, in a sense, behaving in this very feminine manner. And everyone is is insane over it in the most uh-huh. in the best way possible. And so I realized he's on the stage. He is the God, right? And we are worshiping this this androgynous God yeah. for his androgyny. Well, yeah, but it's not an androgyny that's sexless. And I bring that up no, because there's not. an aesthetic... Uh, kind of, uh, I guess, trend or an aesthetic uh, vein that's being uh, explored right now by young people specifically, probably in their mid or early 20s, where they want to be non-binary. And if you look at the ways in which they present themselves, you know, it's guys kind of putting on frilly dresses and stuff. And and the females, it's like they're trying to converge on some sort of uh, androgyny that seems very sexless, where you have Robert Plant and the other guys that I mentioned. That is not a non-sexual androgyny. That is an oh, no. that, that's like the the merging of the opposites. That's like uh, we're going to bring yes. male and female, and we're going to rub them together in one body, kind of thing, rather than kind of try to escape that. Or possibly with another body. And I was too young for that, but damn. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, it was it's highly sexualized, right? Yeah. Um, and I I read a quote where. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne was talking about how they were going to, you know, how Sabbath was going to proceed. And he didn't want to wear makeup. You know, he, he thought, you know, that's some fat crap. I'm not doing it. And then uh, someone, either someone told him or he noticed that the, the guys in the bands that wore the makeup got the most women. And so he decided, okay, well, maybe we can give this eyeliner thing a try. So, and then the rest is history. Yeah, I don't understand that. I mean, especially because... You, most people cannot stop looking like the sex they are. And I, one thing I can say about about the non-binary thing though, when you're in your, or when I was in my early to mid twenties, I got harassed and catcalled and all kinds of, all kinds of nonsense quite a bit. And it's annoying too frightening and mm. sometimes very frightening. So for women, I could understand why you might want to look less female or less sexually available, uh, you know, when you're out in the bell. It doesn't change anything though. You're, it doesn't matter what you wear. You're still gonna get catcalled and people are still gonna be jerks. Um, but I understand where that impulse can come from. With men, I, I don't really understand that um, unless they really want to distance themselves from the more toxic aspects of masculinity. 
Um, but that's not in your clothes. That's in your behavior. It mm. doesn't matter what you're wearing. Um, How did you? I do remember. Hmm? Oh, uh, continue, please. Oh, I was going to say, I you know, I remember um, back when I was dating that it was very important for certain guys to appear to be non-threatening. And I remember when that was also an aesthetic thing, you know, you're non-threatening like Kurt Cobain. And I thought, Kurt Cobain is a man in a rock and roll band. He's about as far from non-threatening as you can get. But okay, I understand what you mean. So, you know, guys would dress in a certain way. I had a conversation with a guy once where he was talking about how women are afraid of masculinity. And it's like, no, we're not afraid of masculinity. We're afraid you're going to kill us or rape us. Well, and we understand that masculinity in and of itself is not a problem. It's what you do with it. So you can hold the door for a woman and all that crap. Just don't rape or kill anybody and don't be a creep. Okay. That's just baseline. Um, I, I, I can... Seriously. Social I, I skills, can't. people. Come on. <laughs> How did you develop as a woman around receiving attention from men? And I bring that up, you know, partly biographically, but also to kind of just share, like, to any young women that stumble across this, that are thinking their way through these things. How did you adapt to that? And Well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, okay. When I was in, I want to say, eighth grade, I, as I said, I went to Catholic school. I went to a small Catholic school. And there were 20 girls and six boys. So the boys pay, started paying sexual attention to some of the girls, not me. And I was both jealous and relieved because one of the things that they would do is grab the girls and pull them into the boys' bathroom. And I thought, well, that's just disgusting. Hmm. Um, you know, or they would, they would grab some girls' butt. And I'm like, mm-hmm, you better not. But at the same time, it's like, well, how come they don't want to grab my butt? And then I'm like, I don't want them to grab my butt. And I don't want them to pull me into the boys' bathroom. It's like, but why don't they want to do that? And I wasn't, how can I say this? I wasn't into boys at that point. Like, I hadn't reached that point of, of maturation. But I still wanted the attention. I just wanted a different kind of attention. Yeah. Um, and when, when I went to high school, I fell in love for the first time. And um, but I also wasn't I just wasn't interested in other boys and they didn't really seem to notice me. Um, and that was kind of OK. But I was also kind of jealous. It's like, how come you're not paying attention to me? It's like, I'm cute. Right. I'm cute. Right. I'm, am I am I cute? Maybe I'm not cute. I think I'm cute. Um, you know. Um, it could have been your rock and roll demeanor too. They just could tell I that you were going to smash their guitar <laughs> as soon as oh they get on your I stage. Was just, I was so I was just so nervy and weird. I still am. Um, just you know, when you're an adult, it's it's less obvious. But um, I, you know, and then the thing is, I have never wanted. In a, in, a, in a deep way, I've never craved a lot of male attention. I've wanted attention from the guys that I've wanted attention from. Yeah. Uh, being, 
you know, the idea of having a bunch of guys like be into me, just it's, it's, it's disturbing. I'm kind of like, why? It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm cute and all that, but uh, don't you have anything else to do? Uh, you know, it's like, I want, I want my husband to think I'm hot. Um, I wanted my boyfriends to think I'm hot. Uh, I guess since, okay. It, the other, the other aspect of this is that, um, I must have been, I must have been 10, I guess, when I, when I, I didn't get tall or anything, but I, I filled out. I was a chubby, chubby little girl. And did you then, uh, beat Davy, Davy Jones at this point? Are you still? No, okay, no, still no. Sub Davy. I would, I, well, who was I into when I was at 10? Or when I was ten, I'm just saying height-wise. Did you suppress? suppress no, him? no, okay. no. I was, I was, I was four foot. I was four foot something. I was probably four, four foot ten, at ten. Um, I didn't hit five feet till I was twelve. So that's when I started realizing it's like, yeah, this whole five seven thing is probably not going to happen. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I would, I would notice that you know people would say things or men would say things. Um, occasionally boys would say things. Um, and as I got older, it, it, stuff like that just happened more and more. Um, about you say things about you. Yeah. Or, you know, they hiss at you on the corner or they, you know, when I was 12, um, one of the, one of the neighborhood boys who's dead now, and I'm kind of glad, um, was trying to talk to me and he had a reputation in the neighborhood of just being a skanky little piece of crap anyway so he uh he beckoned me um you know but he had a nicer house than we did so i was kind of jealous anyway so he was uh i think we were chatting or something and he beckoned me to his his doorstep and i said i said what and he goes well i want you to come in and i said what for and he said i want you to come in and have some sex and i'm like no um and it was just that blatant and obviously I said, no, I went home and I didn't say anything about it because I thought this is just so stupid. It's not even worth mentioning. And then as I would be walking around in the neighborhood, uh, people would call me slut and hoe and all this crap. And, you know, my language is about to get very colorful there, but I will refrain. Uh, the other, uh, people in the neighborhood, uh, were telling me, Oh, Leroy said you had sex with him. And I'm like, Leroy's a liar. And they did not, apparently they believed him instead of me. And I was thinking, do you see this, this skinny little piece of nothing? Why do you think I would even bother with him? Um, but I didn't say that. I, and this idea that I was uh, one of Leroy's conquests seemed to persist. And so the other, a couple of the other boys in the neighborhood started to say very odd things to me. And the, the weirdest thing about it is that I didn't hang out with these kids anymore. I went to a school in a different neighborhood. I spent most of my time um, in the house um, and playing piano or playing guitar or reading. And I was not part of the clique. And I guess maybe that's why it was a big deal or some kind of conquest or whatever, uh, you know, it was Your it was un weird. Uncharted territory kind of thing. I suppose so. Um I I don't get it. I don't know what that was. But um it was never 
compelling to me to have lots of male attention ever. So when I got it, you know, like when I was a, a hot little thing in my twenties walking around in like the, you know, the tiny shirts and the tiny shorts, it still just kind of confounded me. I was like, there's girls way hotter than me out here. What are you doing? You know, or it's like, yeah, I know I look good, but I don't look that good. Do I? I mean, what? And then I realized it, it doesn't have anything to do with what I actually look like. It has to do with the fact that I'm female and I'm there. Yeah. Um, Men can sense your I, ovaries. Or seriously. Everything. Or they can, they can see them because as the gender folks really don't like to hear, your chromosomes are showing. They really are. Um, hmm. You can see the XX here. Doesn't matter what I wear. You you say that uh, male attention was never something you wanted. So I'm just wondering about like the pursuit of rock and roll. In my imagination, when I was, you know, 16 to 24 and imagining myself being somebody on that stage, it was all about the attention. Mm. So so attention didn't figure into your dream of rock and roll. and, And what then was the power fantasy in that? Interesting. Um, I would say that the attention that I anticipated was not sexual attention. I wanted to be recognized as a singer and a songwriter and a rhythm guitarist. Um, Since I didn't find Pete Townsend particularly alluring, I I guess I imagined that I would be some kind of Pete Townsend-like figure. I'm sure there are plenty of women who are all about some Pete, but I was not. I, I think he's a brilliant songwriter. He's an amazing producer and arranger and just the creativity. Oh my God, please, off the hook. Um, so my question was, how do you write something like Quadrophenia? How do you do that? How do you come up with something like Tommy? Or how do you how do you even wrap your mind around putting out a record like uh, who's next or, um, you know, or the who by numbers, like, how do you do that? How do you create this stuff? What mm. goes into that? Um, I also went through a big yes phase where I was convinced that John Anderson is just magical. I, I don't know. It's like the stuff that he comes up with, it's just magic. It's like regular human beings can't come up with that. But how do you do that? How do you ascend to that level of creativity and, mm. and awesomeness? And I also don't find John Anderson particularly alluring. Um, so again, for me, it's like the pull was was artistic, not necessarily sexual. I right, I didn't. I thought Roger Daltrey was hot, but I don't want to be Roger Daltrey. I want to be Pete Townsend. I thought Robert Plant was hot, but I don't want to be Robert Plant. I wanted to be John Anderson. Or, you know, in, in terms of uh, my voice, I wanted to sound like a combination of uh, Aretha Franklin and, um, and Janis Joplin, hmm. who I also don't find particularly alluring. I think they're huge, huge talents. And, you know, I wanted to have that kind of power and that kind of command over my vocal instrument. Um, it, though, it was not about hotness for me. What do you think about that then that pursuit of of what you call awesomeness how how does mm. uh how do you let, let's put it in terms of how would you teach some kid 
that, or I guess even teach them what it is that that is, that awesomeness is? How would I teach them? Uh, that's a good question. The first thing you need is confidence. And I say that because when you're singing, if you aren't confident, your voice is not going to come out the way you want it to. And if you want to sing with power and volume, you, you can't be afraid of making sounds. You also can't be afraid of sounding bad. So you really just kind of have to like, for lack of, I was going to say balls. You have to ovaries your way through that. And that took me a really long time. Um, I wasn't able to do that until I was in my, or on stage by myself. I wasn't able to do that until I was in my 20s, or until I was about to graduate from college. What do you think was so, holding you back, if you don't mind me asking? Well, one Just of the basic things, maturity or uh, anxiety for one thing, and then if you're a black woman and you come from the black community, you're expected to be able to sing really well, and oh. if you can't, um, people will let you know. So it took a while for me to get past all of that to become the awesome, awesome, awesome diva that I am now. Uh, but also I wanted to sing rock and roll. And so the stuff that I was actually singing um, wasn't, it wasn't the kind of stuff that's gonna grow your voice. You, mm -hmm. you know, if you're gonna sing, you have to sing stuff where you're not gonna sound good and where it's uncomfortable in your voice, it's uncomfortable in your body um, you, and you have to grow it. So if I were teaching someone to perform, the first thing I would teach them is confidence and I would have them, um, have them talk loud, particularly girls. Um, lately, there's a thing with the baby voices and everybody's voice is very soft and very immature sounding. And I was not taught that. I was taught to talk like this. So confidence. And then of course we'd work on skill and posture and breathing and singing on pitch and all that good stuff. But if you don't, if you're, if you're not allowed to be loud, you cannot sing properly. And you also can't play instruments. You, you just can't because piano's loud. Acoustic guitar is not all that loud, but it's loud enough. Mm. If you want to play electric guitar, it's loud. You have to be allowed to be loud and in here first, forget about what's going on out there. If you're not allowed to do that in here, you're not going to be able to do it. How, uh, that really strikes close to home. There's this uh, story that I, I, um, that I told about a college that I went to. And one of the main characters is a woman who basically you could say that she riles up the kids to overthrow the college, right? There's this huge huh. protest and there's this woman behind it that's kind of egging the students on the whole time. And uh, she's got a lot of ideas that I strongly disagree with. Um, but she, she makes her black identity central to her mm -hmm. herself. And then she bases that all on oppression. And there's just mm -hmm. one clip of her giving this lecture. And at the end of it, she talks about how when she was told to sing, she was told to shout. And, and she says that, yeah. that singing is con uh, controlled screaming and in a, of in a manner of speaking. So 
I want, I want to articulate this correctly, but it seemed like she didn't have an anchoring in beauty or, or something mm-hmm. outside of that loudness and that volume. Right. And, and that really uh, shaped her aesthetic. And then it also shaped the way that she was able to influence everybody around her, which I and saw was very, very destructive. So, mm-hmm. so taking yeah. that loudness, how do you control mm-hmm. that? And is there an anchor in some sort of aesthetic sense of beauty or another aesthetic sense that's not beauty that guides you into not just being a complete uh, force of nature in a completely negative way? That is a very interesting question. Um, and that is, that's another thing that I do, particularly when I teach group classes. I, we work on the difference between um, music and noise. Um, and we, we do not have cacophony. Even with my, my littlest little kids that can handle instruments, we, we work on that, right? We're not just doing this, we're going to do this. And we're gonna work on doing this and if we can't do this, we will stop and start again. I can be a real pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> we're going to do this because this is a steady beat and this is what we're working on. Um, as far as beauty goes, that's, that's the point. That's the difference between people who can sing on pitch and people who can, people you want to listen to. Um, some of that is beyond your control. Some of that is really just your biology and the shape of your sinuses and how high up your soft palate goes and how your whether or not your vocal cords, when they rub together, make a sound that people actually like. There's not a whole lot you can do to influence that. You can only work with what you've got. Um, but whatever your physical apparatus is, you can work on making it as pleasing as possible, which is why you know, when you sing, you don't go, ah, you go, ah, right. And, well, and you, why is p- being pleasant important? That sounds now, like a value. Why, why do you claim that value? That's a good question. As someone who likes some of your harder rock and or roll music, pleasant is not always where you want to go. You, but, um, as with playing all kinds of music, if you have musical skill, you have at least a couple of options available to you, right? Mm -hmm. You can sing, ah, if that's what, you know, if you're Johnny Rotten, and that's Johnny Rotten's thing, and I really like it when he does that. But you want to be able, ideally, to go, ah, and ah, at will. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you can do one or the other, you can go back and forth or you can choose. If you only have one choice available to you, then you're limited. If you want to sing punk and you can only go, ah, you're going to have to find something else to do. If you want to sing R&B and you can only go, ah, you're going to have to find something else to do. So it just gives you, it gives you choices. I, and there's a Bach minuet I'm working on right now. It's in a minor key. It's a real pain in the ass because fingering's complicated. It is not pleasant. It is. It's gorgeous, but it's full of dissonance. Mm-hmm. And if you if you play it right, the the beauty in that in those unpleasant combinations of notes really comes through. If you hit it too hard, or if you're if you're going too slow, or even if you're going too fast. It just it's just jarring. But when you get it in that sweet spot, the the jarring elements 
are seasoning. They, they're enhancements as opposed to just like, ah, please come on now, play something else. So as far as beauty goes, I think, I, I believe that that's subjective to a certain degree. It depends on our ability to perceive something as beautiful or desirable. Um, but then at the same time, you want something that is, you want to convey the message that you want to convey with these specific sounds. You want the sounds that you're using and the quality of those sounds to speak in the way that you intend them to, mm-hmm. which means that you have to, at the very least, be in control of the quality of those sounds. Yeah. If it's just... Um, uncontrolled uncontrolled cacophony which some people really like um as far as i'm concerned that's that's not where we're going with this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in in a certain way there's uh certain strains of thought and my uh artistic domain being uh i guess literature uh broadly Mm -hmm. speaking where the pursuit of the ugly the pursuit of the ironic um, mm-hmm. The pursuit of the subpar is kind mm-hmm. of uh, was very fashionable for a while. And, and you can see that a lot in visual arts, too. It's very obvious in visual arts where you just yes. see a bunch of people create a bunch of crap. And there was a novelty in modernism in, you know, putting a urinal in the middle of the, uh, you know, of, of the middle of the art gallery. Right. There was a novelty and, and it broke some sort of uh, moray or it kind of violated some sort of rule, but it, it seems like the, the, the we, there's almost like a generation of people that only understand that the you just violate a rule. They don't have any mastery of the the form of the craft, and they think right. that they can just uh, short circuit to the ah eh, without actually developing anything beyond that. Right, and the thing the thing is, um, I'm of two minds about this. Having studied piano with uh, concert pianists, um, I, I deeply appreciate the level of skill and the level of commitment and dedication that mm-hmm. goes into being able to play that music with a, with a high level of proficiency or with any level of proficiency at all. Like just to be able to work your way through it requires a lot of work and a fair amount of talent. At the same time, however, uh, one of the things I love about, about punk and the punk aesthetic is that you take your basic skills, you plug in, and you just go for it. Yeah. That go for it has to be in every aspect of playing music. One of the things that just exhausts me is when you're listening to somebody play and they're highly proficient and you're not hearing the music, you're hearing their playing technique. Or you're hearing... You're hearing the virtuosity, but you're not hearing the piece they're playing. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, maybe you should just play some boogie woogie or something, you know, because when you're listening to classical music and you're and it's really cooking, you know, um, and you're just you're just hearing the music. It's like you're you're listening to this orchestra or this chamber ensemble or whatever it is or this pianist or this cellist and it's just it's just going and that same energy that that same little richard led zeppelin the who the beatles um it's in there it's just in a different form it's in a more complex form yeah without that what i call rock and roll energy yeah we're snoozing through this yeah 
So, you know, uh, and I think that the goal, particularly if you're performing, should be to have that element of, of joy and spontaneity and fun. Now, if you're a, a killer player, you can pull off all that complicated crap and we're still having a party. If you're not that good a player, that's not a problem as long as you're not beating me to death with, um, you know, with some, and, and turning something into some kind of ponderous exercise that really should be enjoyable, which is why I think that anybody can play music with any level of skill. You just have to, it's gotta be fun. It's gotta cook. Mm. If, you, mm. if it's dragon, it's not a good thing. And you're better off playing stuff that's maybe a little easy for you. And if you get that, you know, you get that swing, you get that rock and roll going, then playing a whole bunch of complicated stuff where you're so focused on playing that you're not communicating anything. You're just, you know, you're working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, advice for people in this uh, moment in history that we uh, we're sharing with each other right now? Oh God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very broad, open question. Just like a bit of wisdom. Eat tasty Eat tasty food. <laughs> yeah, because look at all the crazy crap that's going on. This guy doesn't want to leave office. He's been voted out. He keeps losing, and he's still like, oh, no, I really won. Um, yeah, kind of, no, you didn't. Um, stay grounded in reality as much as possible. Try not to worry about this crazy shit, because it's going to be over eventually. Um, mm. But one of the things that I find particularly fascinating and disturbing about this moment that we're experiencing right now is this belief that it is what I say it is because I said it. I didn't lose the election because I said that I won. And I see that in the gender arguments as well. It's like, I'm a woman because I said so. I'm a man because I said so. And if you say that this is not true, you're a liar, you're a bigot, you're oppressing me, you deserve to go to jail, you're trying to kill me and all this crap. I see what's going on in the presidency as a, as a parallel. Mm -hmm. And maybe that mode of thinking that says it is what I say it is, regardless of what it actually is, um, is part of the, let's say, the societal thought process that we're going through right now that allows the whole gender madness to pro proliferate. Um, so I would say stay grounded in Mm -hmm. And the counter to that, then, is, is to stay grounded in reality. Right. And to remember that words actually mean things, that we are able to communicate because we have an agreed-upon vocabulary. We have defined terms, that, can, that the meanings of which have not changed because we're in a moment of, of collective fantasy and delusion. Reality... It, it's still what it is. COVID is real. Men can't be women. Women can't be men. Trump did not win the election. Eat tasty food. Try to eat, a, eat fruits and vegetables every day and try to exercise. I, I mean, I don't even know what else to say right now. It's just, it's just so crazy. <laughs> that, that, I think that that, that perfectly, uh, that, that's the, uh, the spoonful of sugar and the medicine at the same time. There you go. Is there, um, 
anything that uh, we can, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna share people uh, your YouTube channel, which I, I love. You you really just you you lay it out there, and and I really understand. Somebody watches a couple of your videos, they really understand what you're talking about with rock and roll because you 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 just lay it down. Uh, oh, is yeah. there any any other Again, projects you're like, Um. I am writing a novel about musicians, and as a first-time novelist, of course, I had a very ambitious project that has proven to be uh, quite unwieldy. I'm getting to the point, though, where I'm going to be ready to send out a query letter fairly soon. Um, The goal is to get the first third of it um, into shape so that there are no logic holes, uh, the first time through, I got rid- the the first time I did the revisions, I got rid of all the plot holes. Hmm. Second time is like now there's these gigantic logic holes in there, so that's what I'm working on now. Um, I've resolved that if I ever write another book, it will not be nearly as complicated as this thing. Um, hmm. But it's fun. Every time I read it through, I have a great time. I have a really good writers group, and they're enjoying it. I figure as long as I am not uh, tormenting them, then I must be doing something pretty good. Um, And I am writing a little tiny screenplay about uh, the Equality Act and uh, the uh, admitting men into women's safe spaces. So the the Equality Act having to do with gender then? Yes, yes. Um, Putting gender identity on the same footing as biological sex. That's a big problem there. But uh, I'm I'm writing a little screenplay about that. The first scene of that is available on my Patreon page. If you become, uh, if, you know, if you want to support me via Patreon, so I'll be I'm working on the second scene of that today. So I want to try to get that up today, and um, I'm working my way through some Bach preludes, which are wonderful and somewhat complicated. But, uh, you know, good preparation before I move on to his more more major works that I played when I was a kid. Uh, so that's kind of a fun thing. Do you, and, what do you uh, uh, envision your YouTube channel to be? Uh, rants? Do, or do you think you'll be doing any, I don't mean rant in a bad way, but will you be posting any music there? Possibly. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I also started working on, um, I guess, kind of a feminist anthem. I mm. am very inspired by the rollback of free speech rights, or of, uh, well, not of free speech rights because that's still enshrined, but the practice of free speech and the canceling of people for making statements like uh, "only women have periods," people getting bounced off of Twitter for that. Mm-hmm. And while the getting bounced off of Twitter is irritating in and of itself, it speaks to a larger problem of not being permitted to make factual statements in social, on social media. But at the same time, people can lie. People can, because if you say that some men have vaginas, that is not true. And yet that statement is permitted. I don't think any of the speech should be suppressed. I think people should really be able to say anything short of hurling racial epithets and actual verbal abuse and threats of violence. 
I don't think anybody's speech should be suppressed. I think that we should be able to discuss. I think we should be able to argue in a civil manner. Um, but if you can make a statement that is untrue and that is demonstrably untrue and you're okay and then someone gets bounced for making a statement that is true, we have a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that that will unfortunately radicalize people against trans people. I mean, it could have that effect. So I was writing a song about the fact that regardless of how much you try to silence us and you try to shove women into the shadows and he bounces off Twitter, the voices will not be silent. So I, I'm working on that. So it doesn't sound like I'm schizophrenic. Uh, you know, <laughs> how would it, how would that happen? Uh, how would, well, what? Uh, you know, the chorus that I came up with or that I initially came up with like his voices, you, you can, you, you'll always hear our voices. And I'm like, ah, Oh, okay. Yeah. Little, yeah. nah, work on that. We're gonna <laughs> so I have cool music for it. I'm still working on the lyrics. Oh, fun. Cool. Yeah. And then will that be, uh, where do you drop that track, as they say? Oh, I have no idea, because I, I have to finish it. It's a, it's a okay. piano piece. I'm not writing it on oh. guitar. Okay. And um, considering that I generally don't perform on piano and have a significant piano anxiety, Oh, okay. It might take a little while, but what I what I'm thinking of doing is just putting it up as it as it develops, and you know, posting it as a work in progress. That this is where we are right now. This is where the lyrics are. This is what the music's going to be, and you know, kind of taking all of the pressure off of off of me and off of the song to actually be anything. I'm very process oriented, so. Mm -hmm while I would love to have this evolve into a larger project, I am not going to put that kind of pressure on myself right now. Um, it's like, let me just see what, let, let's just see what we can do with this. Yeah. Great. Well, um, I will make sure to shuffle everybody to your products and uh, I'll, I'll link your music and your YouTube. And uh, I guess we'll have to wait on the book coming out. Yes, a little while. Um, unless, of course, I don't know, I just buckle down and, and work on it, which is not, you know, seeing as how it's COVID, God knows I've got time. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see how much longer uh, the uh, COVID times last. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for your time. Well, thank you. This was so much fun. I, I love your your stuff on YouTube. I think it's so necessary for you to amplify the voices of people who are, like as I'm calling them now, the same people. The same. Um, yes, indeed. I, <laughs> I, I love your interviewing style. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad for that. And I'm glad that I've been able to uh, get you on the channel channel too i think people are going to get a kick out of your uh, personality uh, i certainly hope so i mean you know uh i enjoy me oh god <laughs> congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast if you enjoyed this product consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash benjamin boyce or joining me on patreon also follow me on twitter at benjamin a boys. Have a good night.